Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. Today, my guest is an old friend, Richard Warner. Hello, Richard. How are you this afternoon? Hello, Marcello. Good to hear from you. You're a good old friend. It's true. And, you know, we don't even, we, we remember when we first met, but we can't remember it. But we'll talk about right. that. <laughs> That's uh, right. You probably not tell people how ancient <laughs> exactly. we are. Exactly. Uh, I, I sometimes tell uh, students that I work with that there's only 42 people in theater, and you eventually work with all of them. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> so I've had that happy pleasure working with you. You well, it's mutual, and um, well, let's let's tell because we're just going to have too much fun if I don't at least uh, introduce you. They won't know what's going on. But anyway. Richard Warner has been teaching acting at the University of Virginia for 30 years, where he has had the honor of coaching many talented actors and many names you may know, like Tina Fey. He also taught Sarah Drew of Grey's Anatomy, with whom he worked in 2014 in the short film Waking Marshall Walker. And in that film, that short film, he played the lead opposite Sarah Drew. And Richard has also worked with Emily Shallow, uh, Supernatural, and The Mentalist, two of my favorite shows. While working as an actor in New York City, Richard Warner studied with Michael Howard and performed at the Manhattan Theatre Club, the Chelsea Theatre Center, WPA Theatre, and Douglas Fairbanks Theatre. Richard's film credits include Homer Benson in Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, no less, uh, Dr. Ezra Abbott in Ridley Scott's Killing Lincoln, and Chester Bowles in the National Geographic Channel's Killing Kennedy. In 2016, Richard appeared in Farewell Old Stringy in the lead role of Davy. Richard created the role of L.P. Everett, by the way, in the episode The 20% Solution for the television program Homicide, Life on the Street. Now, I've talked a lot about Richard as a 
uh, a teacher and actor, but he also has directing credits as well. And they include A Streetcar Named Desire, Glass Menagerie, A Raisin in the Sun, The Foreigner, A Man of For All Seasons, Six Characters in Search of an Author, Lost in Yonkers, and Driving Miss Daisy, to mention a few. But we do want to get to some questions. It's been so long ago since I've welcomed Richard to the show, so I'll welcome him again so we can hear his voice. Welcome, Richard, to The Reasonable Voices. How are you? It's great to be here. And, uh, you know, we deeply appreciate in our community that you're doing this for us. Uh, this is a lively, wonderful show, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's certainly lively. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Richard, for saying that. As you know and mentioned off-air, I, I have just recently talked to Erica Arvold, our mutual friend and professional uh, casting director and director and producer. And so it's great to have you on the show. And I guess we could start with that. You and uh, Erica make, well, you do a lot of work together, but you also uh, do videos that instruct actors on how to be the business of the business and they are on YouTube. Why don't you tell us, start with that, and where we can find that? Right. Uh, it's really quite simple. What you do is you just simply uh, punch up uh, uh, YouTube Arvold, and you'll see a whole series of them. And the genesis of that was really starts this way, is that uh, we got, were connected by a mutual friend when I was teaching at the University of Virginia, and the friend said to me, you'd be crazy not to have Erica Arvo come into your classes mm. and uh, let your students know about what it is to be a professional film actor. So I invited her in, and over a series of semesters, uh, we would uh, Erica would be teaching, and then she would graciously turn to me and say, what do you think about that, Richard? <laughs> I would say something, and why I'm telling you this is that what evolved was a sort of natural team teaching effort. We yes. came out of a class and say, you know, this this is pretty neat. This is working really well. Mm -hmm. So that uh, through uh, a bunch of different conversations and dialoguing, which is what it is, we're simply dialoguing, having fun together, talking about things that we think are the nuts and bolts of the profession, how to prepare for a role, how to uh, uh, what's the etiquette on the set. Uh, what are pictures and resumes, those little details. And uh, Erica, in her own wonderful way, decided with her, her dear and wonderful colleague, Amy Quick, the mm -hmm. director of our education program, to put these uh, free on YouTube as a, a resource for actors. Uh, and we felt just in the mid-Atlantic, but we are stunned and so happy and overwhelmed and honored that we're getting now people saying in L.A., in Portland, mm -hmm. even in Europe, saying they're watching these things. Yes. And uh, it's just because right now, and you know this well, is that uh, the industry is no longer now centered in New York, Chicago, oh, and nice. L.A., uh, and, and now moving to Atlanta. Uh, there, there's a vitality of the film industry on the highest levels uh, in Virginia and in many parts of the United States. Yes. You know, I can remember, well, I, I team taught with uh, Erica once too, and I remember how gracious she was, just as you, as well as talented and informative. But when I started, I actually was in the Mid-Atlantic and then went to New York for, oh, I guess, 20, so 20 plus right. years. And when I was in the Mid-Atlantic, everyone was saying I had to go to New York, and so I did. And, but I'm reminded how much the business has changed. So I can remember lobbying before I went to New York to get people to bring work to the Mid-Atlantic, and that just was way before the time they were ready, I guess. But now, 
Florida, Atlanta, Georgia, um, the whole southeast region. Uh, uh, they're following the sun, I know, but, but also in the Commonwealth of Virginia, they're just tremendous places to shoot. So somewhere in there, there's a question. I know I always say that, but let's start back with, how do you, what do you have to tell us about the history of theater and film in the Mid-Atlantic, particularly Central Virginia, Charlottesville, and the University of Virginia? Absolutely. Second, what you said there is that it was slow going, but it starts with the, uh, the Virginia legislature and uh, several governors who really said that we need to really seriously think about this being something that's economically mm -hmm. really viable. Mm -hmm. And so there's incentives here now for film companies to come. And film companies will come if those incentives are here, which is why uh, centers like Georgia are happening. Louisiana has a strong one. I can go on and on about those, but yes. let's get to the Mid-Atlantic in, in particular. Mm -hmm. Virginia. One thing that you hear everyone from the, the great Steven Spielberg all, all the way through to independent film uh, companies, the, the lovely film that just recently loving that happened here yes. in our area, they say this is a beautiful area in which to film. Think about it. They have all that wonderful stuff in either in Richmond or D.C., the rich history, if we're doing a political or governmental situation or a military one, they're very close to the ocean, so that mm. you have films like Turn being able able to use the water. It was yes. used in Lincoln, too, in Petersburg. And then a uh, hop, skip, and jump away, you have beautiful mountains. So the, the topography is wonderful for our film locations. So right for that as well. And then, uh, and here's the thing I'm most proud of, and I think, uh, I must say, my our good colleague Eric Arville has a lot to do with this. The uh, L.A. Is and New York is now beginning to understand there's a, a wonderful wealth of talent yes. here in the Mid-Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And that's not just actors. There's also uh, a great deal of production people behind the scenes, mm -hmm. a growing number of those that are, uh, are working professionals. And uh, they are willing to take a risk to, to hire us, but then they realize that not only is that uh, good for them economically, but they're also getting pretty high-quality uh, performances. Yes. And that, that's time and time that way. If we can focus on something like loving, uh, many, many of those people beyond the, the, the two stars were uh, homegrown mm -hmm. in the mid-Atlantic. Uh, we have this wonderful thing happening now on the, the, the series Atlanta, all shot of Atlanta using a lot of Atlanta actors. So uh, what I'm proud of and what I saw is what you, you just said there is that for so often, so for, for so long, we had to struggle with a, a, a film here, a film there, mm -hmm. but now there's back-to-back -back things happening, and so if an actor is ready, willing, and able to hustle and has some gifts, talent, and training, mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can have a fairly legitimate career here. By fairly legitimate, I mean, let's, be, let's face it, it's not like what you have in L.A. and New York, mm -hmm. but with a little hustle, and if you're willing to get in your car and travel, you, uh, you, you, could, you could make a, a career out of it. And I think that's it, and as long as we've, you've said that, you know, getting in your car and travel, uh, another new wrinkle is this uh, digitally self-taping uh, auditions. Tell us a little about that and how that is a reality now. One, an actor has to do that, but the good news is it opens you up to geographically where you probably have not been seen, or, and now all of a sudden there you are. And, yeah, it's, it has, you 
you know, it's a, a, a double-edged sword in some ways, isn't mm-hmm. it? Or, or yes. Because back in the day, and, and let's let's uh, let's tell people that we were uh, in the generation where what you did is you went through a series of person-to-person, you know, face-to-face yes. auditions as you were moving forward to a screen test. Um, now, for efficiency's sake, and because the, the filming is so effectively efficient in the sense of well, we, you can get a, you can do a high-quality mm-hmm. tape an iPhone or uh, uh, any any phone that you're, you're holding right in front of your face, mm-hmm. that now it's very efficient for casting directors to do that. The downside is that you don't really see a live person until sometimes you're on the set. Yes. And so you have to know that. And that's, a, that's something that I found that I'm t- trying to teach and I'm coping myself as a performer is a sense of isolation, that we're, uh, you're, we're sprawled out here. And the more and more that we do so taping and realize that uh, for efficiency's sake, they're going to see us when we're on the set, the more and more I think we have to strive to make sure we do create a mid-Atlantic performance uh, film, TV, theater community. That we, united we stand, uh, separated, we're, uh, we're feeling lonely. You know, we, mm-hmm. uh, I do think that we are, by nature, community-driven uh, beasts. I think that's what a performer is. We need community around us to do our thing. And so, for me, what I, I tell people that I teach is that self-taping, uh, if you can, shouldn't be a solo sport. You should get together in teams and, mm. and work on it together. Uh, people probably know you're a wonderful director. You know, it would be, you know, touching base with people that uh, you can share the uh, and tape, tape together. And so that what happens is you're creating your own little pocket communities um, to really continue to have that kind of energy, live energy, because mm-hmm. uh, you ask any casting director what they want in a self-tape is they want it look like you're standing right in front of them. They want it that alive, that free, that uh, fresh uh, and, and spontaneous. Well, first of all, Richard, I agree with everything you've said, and thank you for the compliment. But also, you anticipated my question, which was, how do actors, mid-Atlantic or otherwise, deal with this new reality? And you uh, you answered it perfectly before I asked. And that is, you come together and create a small group. And I'll say, unashamedly, uh, I direct videos. So if there are actors out there that uh, want the benefit of that, let's let's do as Richard said. Let's come together and work together. And certainly when I have an audition, I don't mind getting in front of the camera when someone's behind it and knows better how to shoot, because as you say, it's definitely not a solo performance. Tell me, you know, I wear political hat a great deal too, but I don't want to pigeonhole or take the conversation too far afield. I appreciated knowing you were going to be on today, so I thought, well, I don't have to talk politics for a change. But but how do you think our 2016 elections will impact on how we as a people value the arts in from now on or at least for the next four or eight years and what is the value of especially film and theater i think that's what you and i do most although i've done tv but still um what what's the value in your opinion of film and theater and 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 good television like turn uh to the american culture and society i mean Given our, can we see through and beyond the political, current political focus? 
Yeah, and I'd like to do that, too, because uh, I don't uh, fancy myself at all like you, somebody that really is a political expert, but I've been, uh, I've had a life in the arts, and a, and a blessed life in the arts mm -hmm. in America. We are a free nation, and, and, and freedom of speech being the bedrock of what we do. Yes. And uh, part and parcel of that is the idea that arts are essential to a culture, and um, and you, you've heard many elegant people say that, but you know what I did? Uh, knowing that and anticipating you might uh, ask me that question, <laughs> I went back and I looked at some uh, some quotes from people. Can I do that for you? Oh, this absolutely. Is really interesting. Please. All right, so this is from uh, Steve Jobs, okay? Wow. He said, it's in the Apple's DNA that technology alone is not enough. Mm. It's technology married with the liberal arts, married with the humanities that yields us the results that make our heart sing from Steve Jobs, wow. okay? Um, from uh, somebody like, uh, let's do a political person, William Bennett, former mm. U.S. Secretary of Education. Yes. An elementary school that treats the arts as the provinces of a few gifted children or views them as only recreation and entertainment is a school that needs an infusion of soul. Mm. And arts are essential element of education, just like reading, writing, and arithmetic. Wow. Uh, and then you have uh, John F. Kennedy uh, yes. and uh, that elegant speaker. Yes. Here's one of my favorite quotes. I, I would tell my students this. Here's from John F. Kennedy. Aeschylus and Plato are remembered today long after the triumph of imperial Athens are gone. Mm. Dante outlived the ambitious the ambitions of the 13th century Florence. Goethe stands serenely above the politics of Germany. And I am certain that after the dust of centuries has passed over cities, we too will be remembered not for their victories or defeats in battle or in politics, but for our contributions to the human spirit. Wow. I, and I, then, uh, my, a final two, and I don't want to belabor this, Albert Einstein, log logic will get you from A to B, imagination will take you everywhere. Mm, yes. And then my final one, uh, again, sorry to belabor no, this, no, but no. so much it's great. Oh my God! <laughs> so if you picture who that is, mm. politicians don't bring people together. Do for Richard Daly. Say that again. We lost. What does politics? Uh, uh, art, it says politicians don't bring people together. Artists do. Excellent. And from Richard Daly, no less. That's right. And so for me, what that's all saying is that. And I, I uh, again, part of the, the blessing of me being in the mid-Atlantic, and I'll just focus on Charlottesville now, mm -hmm. is that this is a city that's very savvy to the arts. When I moved down here 30 years ago, there was there was a uh, lovely energy in theater. And if you think even about film, uh, Marcello, in this industry, what we had was we had the Vinegar Hill, and we had a variety of places where people could go and see film. And then as film starts to move to even being viewed in a different way, you know, uh, oh, yes. you know, I, uh, my mother was of the generation, I, I imagine yours was too, where you, where you went to a film and it was a community event. Mm. My mom was of the generation where they, they actually gave away uh, dish, dishware mm. in the back 
of the theater. You know, it was a community event. And we're getting further and further away from that in some ways because of the accessibility to film and TV in our own living rooms. So what I really feel that we need to do as a community is know, and, and this community has done a really good job of it, of fostering arts. One, one thing at the centerpiece of this is the lovely film festival that we have. Yes. We have a book festival. Those community activities are, again, a, a way of uniting us. And I think what all these quotes say to me is that it's a bipartisan way of doing that. Yes. If you let artists freely express what they see, then in fact what you have is an unbiased and maybe something that's long-lasting about who we are as a people. Yes. And it's also a way to get out of ourselves and really focus on what is most essential now, which is who we are as an American people that is over the next four, five, six years, mm. who we are. And uh, I think artists can really, really help to do that. I, uh, wow, Richard, that, that was wonderful and beautiful. And I couldn't agree more. And I do think not only as your quotes prove that it is the artists and the art, whether it be film, television, or uh, the liberal arts of painting, whatever, the fine arts, they are what record, if you will, our history. They are what uh, make the imprint on memory. And I think, I'm so glad I asked you the question, <laughs> and again, you anticipated me, but it's, um, you got it, you nailed it. And even though I thought that already, the way you put it, I, I feel the challenge, the gauntlet is down, that it is the artists who need to show the way because uh, America is not going to be changed by one man or one administration. Uh, America uh, evolves as a people uh, through, through art, through culture, through our history, and dare I say, our history. We're going to take a, sh <laughs> yes. We're going to take a short break. This is so exhilarating. I am talking to uh, Richard Warner, good friend, actor, teacher, director. Our paths have have crossed so many times, and we're going to chat a little about that, even though most of the times that they crossed, it took years before we knew who each other was. We'll be right back. It's quite a story. Stay with us. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. There are some fine films centered around the concept of city mouse, country mouse. Junebug is one of the best. It takes an observant writer and some very fine filmmaking to tell a story of culture shock that maintains empathy for both city and country folk and doesn't resort to cliché and cheap laughs. Laughter here is character-driven and non-judgmental, a difficult balance struck by writer Angus McLaughlin and director Phil Morrison. When Madeline, a Chicago art gallery owner, married George, a North Carolina boy, he didn't bother to invite his relatives to the ceremony. He put country and his family behind him. The twist comes when gallery business brings the newlyweds back to his hometown. This is a story about people striving for a different life, about those who are satisfied with the lives they are leading, and about those who are just plain stuck. The sweet essence that makes this film a special gem comes from Ashley, George's pregnant sister-in-law, a high school bride married to a deeply dissatisfied husband. Ashley tries mightily to make her world a happy one, steadfastly refusing to acknowledge her own misery. 
She is beautifully played by Amy Adams in this extraordinary breakthrough role. A star was born in Junebug. Indie Film Minute, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Welcome back to The Reasonable Voices. Uh, my guest again today is Richard Warner, great friend, great actor, teacher, director. As I signed off the last segment, I mentioned that our paths have crossed many times, but it took years for us to work together. And then even after those years, once we were working together, it took us several days of working together before we realized who we were. That is, people had been telling each other, well, I don't know what they told Richard, but I know when I first bought a home in Charlottesville, which has now become my second home, I spent so much time in D.C., but when, when I first bought a home in Charlottesville, I went to the University of Virginia to visit, to say, hello, guess what, I'm in town, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it, and they were very nice, they were very gracious. The university, they were gracious, and everyone said to me, every time I met someone, said, you need to meet Richard Warner. Uh, he's the head of our acting uh, department. I don't know if I said that earlier at University of Virginia, uh, and um, you need to meet him. And I said, okay, I would love to. Found the, the door with his name on it. Didn't find him. He's probably in class or, or directing something. But years later, Richard and I finally worked together. And Richard, you want to take it from there? Yes. And, uh, Spielberg's and it Lincoln. was truly one of the, of the peak experiences of my career. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true about you. Oh, yes. Uh, there's so many stories we could tell <laughs> about that. But one of the, the, the great things is that we had a little cadre of, of, of community actors, and it's where Marcello uh, and I first met. And, and, and it included several of our colleagues from the Richmond and Charlottesville area. Yes. And we just uh, had a great good old time. Basically, and let's see if this makes sense, and then you just jump right in. Okay. Uh, one, we knew we were doing something that had a great deal of value and perhaps even oh, important. Yes just had that feel to it. And you could tell that from everyone. And, and uh, you know, the listeners, you're talking to two old birds who have been around a lot of film, and so they, they arrive at different levels and different uh, artistic uh, temperaments. Mm -hmm. And this, from the get-go, you realize, was something that had some, uh, some real value, artistic weight yes. to it. And, and so that was number one. I remember the first day, remember the first we were, uh, maybe to, to catch it up, we were both uh, cast as as a, a congressman. Mm -hmm. And so we were on the, f the floor of the, the Richmond... Um, State uh, Assembly, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and we were all there. And so uh, I tell people, just conjure that uh, it looked like a Rembrandt painting, mm. uh, the costumes impeccable i tell people it was probably the greatest array of beards i'd ever seen in my life <laughs> yes. every one of us was sort of naturally bearded and so you were immediately uh feel like you're a part of something uh you know you're swept into another century well we're all sort of chatting getting to know each other and there was a hush and uh, we knew some, you could just feel, because we're all actors, something mm. was going to happen. And down the aisle came t uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, yes. who was going to be the star of our segment. And you could tell the energy building and all that. But then there was an even greater hush. 
Coming out just sort of uh, really energized in a ball cap and a uh, overcoat and scarf yes. was this energized little man who shot down one of the aisles, went across the front and turned to us and said, all right, gentlemen, let's get to work. That's right. I remember that. He went right down the row uh, uh, shaking hands and talking. And I, I had met him once many years ago. We're talking about Steven Spielberg, if that's not clear. There are a number of Lincoln films, but, but uh, Richard and I were in uh, Spielberg's Lincoln that was shot in Richmond, Virginia, among other places, uh, in, in 2011. And uh, working with Steven Spielberg, you know, when one when I when I say cavalierly, um, I direct video well. <laughs> when you watch Steven Spielberg direct, and when you are directed by Steven Spielberg, well, it's just an entirely different world. Uh, an amazing talent an amazing gentleman, uh, an artist, and, uh, you know, everything had to be perfect, and yet he never seemed to lose patience. And the reason he was in that scarf and overcoat, remember, Richard, is because he was sick as he could be, and he was taking antibiotics and everything, and Sally Fields up from the balcony yelling down, how are you doing, and he'd pop another pill. It was, it, it was in, in every respect. Let me ask you one, one more, even if we spend the whole second segment on it. Do you remember, because this was a big moment for me, but how did you feel about uh, when when um, Tommy Lee was doing his big speech, his big moment? Uh, yeah, I know, I know you know. And then this gentle voice, we didn't even know where he was. Steven Spielberg was up in the balcony and we couldn't see him because we were down on the congressional floor with Tommy Lee. And, and Stephen said, that was good, Tommy Lee. How about now add this? And we, we remember all the heads? We turned toward the balcony, the voice we couldn't see, and then we turned back in an absolute silence and look at Tommy Lee, who took a moment. And we thought it was great the first time, right? Yes. Tell me, tell me, because I know how, and I think I've told that story on radio before, but tell me, you tell me how you felt in that series of of directions from Stephen to Tommy Lee and what happened to all of us in the room. Right. Uh, yeah, I'd love to tell the story. Um, first of all, I, I want to double back a little bit. Uh, as a, we're both actor coaches, it was an actor coach's uh, heaven oh. because to watch Steven Spielberg, how he could deal specifically with different kinds of actors. Yes. He had university-trained actors from elite training programs. He talked to them quite differently than somebody like Tommy Lee Jones, mm -hmm. who's a method-trained actor. Mm -hmm. And so to watch him masterfully move and know the vocabulary yes. instantly of different actors, how present he was, was simply masterful. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the reason I figured he was up on the balcony is he wanted that that, that particular speech ended with Tommy Lee Jones' character, that is, Stevens, connecting with uh, Mary Todd. Uh, yes. And so he wanted the intimacy of that connection so that he was he was where his, his position was a brilliant stroke of saying, here's where you have to reach, Tommy Lee. Mm -hmm. You have to reach up here 
with as much as you can because that's what I'm seeing in my eye mm. as how intimate I want the scene to be. So that was number one. What a stroke to know that he had to get up on the balcony yes. to do these gentle directions. And what it was, and this is what it is that if you recall, it was a series of things. He, he would say gently, um, do it uh, with a little bit of chagrin. Yes. Do it with a, a little bit of a touch of anger. Mm. Do it just for Mary now. And it was like 15 times in a row. Yes. And we watched Tommy Lee Jones hear the direction and then immediately... Boom. Deeply emotionally connected into the next moment, one after another. Just so, layers and layers, and he kept adding. Layers. Uh -huh. and, and so for me, I was sitting there, and, I, and it was one of those things that every performer wants. And of course, this is a, a, a sort of a, a grizzled professional <laughs> crowd. There's 300 actors on the floor, people mm. in the balconies, grips everywhere, technicians everywhere. What mm. all the actors looking for is that great and wonderful hush that yeah. happens. Yes. And that's what was happening, and we were all breathing together. There was just this hushed silence. I, I call it the sacred space. Yes. It happens in theater. It rarely happens on the movie set when you have that sort of sacred hush where everyone is knowing something deep and rich and human is happening. And that's what we all were in witness to. And so there was that deep hush, that silence that everyone was savoring. Uh, this is something quite special that we here witnessed, and we know it's going to be on film for the rest of eternity. Mm. And then we just uh, just broke into applause. Exactly. It was a glorious moment created by two really, really fine artists. Mm. And the fun thing is that you know, uh, and anybody who's been on stage or in film, that the two of us, with all these other other gents uh, on, on the deck, a small part of it, a little mm. little mosaic piece of that, mm. because he, we were there, present, and he was doing it for us in character. Mm. So it was an amazing moment. It really was, and uh, and and the you you know the old cliche, you could have heard a pin drop. You, right. you could, but we, as you were saying, we could see, um, I we couldn't see Stephen, but we could see Tommy Lee Jones. And we could see how he listened, uh, and then how he took it in, how his face changed, uh, and he just added layer after layer that was requested. And when it was all said and done, you're right, we all erupted in applause after that moment of, oh my God, what have you just witnessed, you know? All right, okay, we could go on and on, but we're going we're gonna to... It was an experience I will never forget, and uh, I have been fortunate to be directed by a, a number of uh, named directors, but I don't think anything will ever surpass my experience with Steven Spielberg. So, okay. Hey, something this is where he was at he's done so many films now and he is so faithful to his staff and crew yes he's worked with uh, his his cinematographer since uh Raiders of the Lost Ark he's worked with his you know everyone around him yes so they move is a really elegant wonderful team and he's at a point in his career now and we all knew that there's just hundreds of thousands of dollars invested here but he wasn't leisurely he was very businesslike yes. but there was never any pressure mm -hmm. a lot of times in film which he feels always the pressure of money and time. And he was very, it was just open and artistic for all of us and relaxed all of us. It you know, was really quite something. The only time I saw anything that I would, uh, what's a good word for it? Uh, the, um, it's not tense, but as, as in uh, uh, focused, uh, um, 
I don't know what the good word. Let me describe it, and you you perhaps can come up with a word for me. It, the while the rest while while Stephen made the rest of us comfortable and better than perhaps that we had ever been. If you watched him prep for the shot in getting the different lens, the right lens, trying this, gesturing with someone to bring whatever it was he needed, checking the pad, looking where the the, the, the script lady and so forth. He was the one who had a certain tension in the good sense of that word. He was the one on top of it, all of it. And there was, a, uh, as you say earlier, uh, an energy, uh, an electricity. That's the word I want. But it was all him setting it up. And then once he was ready for us, he became this very different, calming, yet focused like a laser beam um, mentor. That makes oh, great. sense. That's a great word. Could I, I'd love telling these stories. One more, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. Uh, very we're enjoying it. <laughs> and, uh, I know Charlotte would, would agree with me. Is that the great uh, writer, uh, theater writer, Tony Kushner, was yes. the screenwriter for yes. this. And he was present quite a bit. And here's why we felt very special in just a very small piece of this film, a little mm. couple in it is that they made us feel special. He would arrive on set, and he had printed out for each one of us, gang, he would print, he printed out for us um, what was happening in the Congress that, that particular day yes. that we were shooting. So it was things like, okay, if you're a Democrat, you'd probably say this. If mm. you're a Republican, this is what you'd be thinking. So that we had a piece of that history that we could improv as we ad-libbed different conversations mm -hmm. in shots for large master shots. So we felt a real piece of the integrity of the art of that film. And that starts at the top and goes down. But yes. I, I just remember being uh, feel, feeling like an artist, which is what I think you're saying, which is um, he ha knows, he takes, absorbs like a sponge all the pressure, mm. but he's so graceful and elegant about knowing that the best environment for his performers was to keep them in form, keep them in character, keep them focused on exactly the project he wanted, which is also good business. Yes. He doesn't have to do the 17 takes. Exactly. We're all there ready to go because we are in a team working on a mm. very special moment in his film. You know, I'm, one more, but just one more. <laughs> then we have that. We have to, I mean, we'll be the only ones listening to this show. <laughs> but, um, uh, Stephen came over to, uh, who was his first AD, Adam, I think. Um, and I saw him say, I want Marcello to uh, say one in, in this list of possible lines and choose one. So, uh, you know, Adam comes to me and, and says, uh, and, you know, here it is, choose whichever one you want. Well, I didn't want to choose the longest or the shortest. I wanted, you know, I don't know, uh, but I worked on it, I worked on it, and all the actors around me were supporting and they were one, one line, right? And when uh, Stephen came back, he, I could see him, and uh, he wasn't that far away, and he said, did, did you give Marcello, did Marcello choose a line? And Adam said yes, and showed him, and Stephen said, oh, no, 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 I want him to say this. And he had chosen the longest one, and then he was uh, no, ready we... to go. <laughs> and so, but anyway, all right, we, we, Richard and I are having a wonderful time reliving our time together, but the one thing, the point I, this all started out to be, for me anyway, was Richard and I met on the set of Lincoln in the uh, General Assembly that was serving as the U.S. Congress in the film Lincoln, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. And we enjoyed each other's company, side by side, talking between takes, great conversations about the art. 
and then suddenly we introduced ourselves and then I leapt to my feet and I went, you're the person everyone's been telling me I should meet. And I had been in Charlottesville for a few years. So <laughs> do you remember that? Yes. It, uh, and, and, and that's a, sort of the wonderful magic about the instant communities that are filmed. Um, you're, you know, uh, a certain degree away from somebody you know. Um, and it was a wonderful reunion because we had uh, a lot of shared history. Yes. Uh, in our training and in the people that we knew in our New York experience. Um, and it's just really uh, one of the things that keeps me going in, in this crazy business is that uh, the, the, the wonderful relationships you, you know, some of them are lasting, some of them are like this, which is, um, you know, we we, uh, we met once and we're, we're talking like old friends and yeah. then we realize, well, one of the reasons is that we come from the same Same, yes. You know, the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, so many stories like that. Uh, the fellow that I was sitting next to, we started talking, and I realized one of his dear friends is somebody I taught 20 years ago. You know, uh, all those interconnections are part of, the, again, the community that is film and TV and, and theater. Mm. Excuse me. I got all choked up. <laughs> Well, it, it, is, it is incredible, and we could go on and on, but I do want to ask Richard a couple of more questions. And, but as he alluded to, even though we didn't work together in New York, we, were, we worked at the same places. We, uh, we knew the same people. It was inevitable that sooner or later we'd meet. Both, um, uh, both of us survived. And indeed, we thrived as actors and directors in New York City. And that in itself is not a small claim. And heaven knows we were both blessed. Uh, I could, I've told my story too, long, too often about how I first went to New York. Um, and so I'm not going to tell it again. But, but it was quite a, a career. Now, how do actors survive in the mid-Atlantic? Are there specific strategies? Um, what's the biggest difference uh, for you? I know what it is for me, but what's the biggest difference for you from working in New York City and working in uh, Central Virginia, say, or the Mid-Atlantic right, That's a great question and, and has a lot of complicated ideas surrounding it. But the greatest thing is something we've already alluded to, which is the sense of isolation that you, yes. you have. You know, uh, I could walk out my door in New York City, walk two blocks, uh, and walk into uh, a restaurant, a mm. cafe, mm -hmm. and know that there are three or four actors there that are talking about the idea. You know, you're rubbing elbows with yes. people in your trade. Uh, not so prevalent here. So you have to have a special energy when you're in mid-Atlantic, which means that you really, part of it is half car will travel. Mm. But you have to be ready, willing, and able to uh, know that uh, if you are a sane or serious mid-Atlantic uh, uh, film person, TV person, and to a certain extent theater, that your jurisdiction or your territory uh, might reach from Baltimore, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, Atlanta, Charlotte, you know, it's mm -hmm. a wide area, Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. yes. You know, some people work in, uh, in Stanton at that lovely uh, Shakespeare Theater. Oh, that yes. large uh, area is your territory. So it means that uh, you're sort of like a uh, on-the-road salesman. You've got you to gotta get out there and pitch your product. 
the other thing is that uh, because we have to keep in tune, like a good athlete, like um, mm -hmm. a good musician, anybody who's in the, uh, performing in front of an audience, um, you, I, I strongly recommend training, training, training. Yes. That you keep yourself sharp by getting in front of mentors, by, by testing your stuff, by stretching, by trying to, to uh, refocus. You know, the older we get, the more we, I think we have to refine our range as an actor. Mm -hmm. uh, there, people are not going to cast us for everything. We have to know what exactly it is we can give to a certain role. Um, and that's part of it, too, uh, that to, really, uh, to really make sure that you're in tune and ready to go. When you're around a group of people, it's a little easier, and your isolation takes a lot of personal incentive. So I tell uh, people that uh, I have a little expression, I tell them that, I, okay, that uh, for me, rather than thinking of it as a film career, think of it, and this is not for me semantical, mm -hmm. think of it as a film practice. You're practicing mm -hmm. like a lawyer practice, mm -hmm. like a, a doctor practice, a professor. That to keep, like practice means it's more, it's as important to know who I am as a theater film artist outside of the gig as much as it is when I am hired inside the gig. Mm -hmm. Who I am to stay active and alive and artistic and aware outside of, uh, and, and when I'm unemployed is just as essential. I have to, I have to do that to maintain good artistic health. And the way I think you do that is that you find and fuel what you're passionate about it, that you are persistent in that pursuit of it. And here's the final one, patience. Mm. Patience. That you, uh, an, an artist in America has to be very, very patient because there are so many talented people out there. You have to be satisfied with the work you get and be good at it and be ready to do it because it might be in between uh there might be big spaces before you get a chance to do it again mm. and so if you can philosophically for me say uh, it's not just when i'm in uh, uh performance that i am an actor mm. i am an actor i am a film actor uh, 24 7 and i have to fill my day with things that uh that support that effort that i am uh that that is a, an acting practice rather than and that's what i'm pursuing and and that uh, that includes i believe what you're saying that includes and Erica said this too, you need to de associate with the acting community, wherever you right. are. And it was right. so much easier, you're right, it was so much easier in New York. I mean, you, every, well, there are actors everywhere. And, and you know, you, you work the same theaters and whatever. I'm sure we've all been on Theater Row and all of that. But um, I hear what you're saying and I really appreciate it. I mean, I know this and yet when you say it to me, Richard, I'm going... Oh, yes, that's right. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, it's not like I haven't, as a director and a teacher, said that to actors. But still, hearing it from another person of your caliber, it makes you realize you're right. It's 24-7. It's a practice. And you, if you are not associating with people who do what you love doing, then you're denying yourself a certain amount of training. How's that? Absolutely right. Uh, you know, I have learned so much from uh, 
wonderful 16-year-old actors on stage, an mm. old guy like me, uh, be, because, uh, you know, talent is not just something, you know, training and experience has a lot to do with our trade. Uh, but uh, you can learn so much from a very gifted artist with a, a really fresh eye starting out. And, mm. and that's the, the, the great thing about the work and why I think both of us hung around in it. Just to give you an example, one of the parts we're talking about is that when uh, people say, well, you know, I really want to be in film and TV, mm. I said, well, you know, really, uh, uh, because of what we just talked about, don't don't uh, look, seek out, seek out things you can do in theater as well. Yes. That, that, that's going to be so enriching for you to do that. You talk to any actor who's really been out there in film, and they come from different generations, but those that really know it are going to say, um, I always go back to theater. Yes. Uh, I think about Brian Cranston or Meryl Streep, they go back and do that again yes. for very good reasons to have that really intimate contact mm. with, with, a, with an audience. And to give uh, people an example, I'm just going to do it in, in the Charlottesville area. Mm-hmm. When, when we arrived here a long time ago, Marcello, it was, uh, there was not too much out there. But if you think about Richmond and D.C. now, but this is just in our little uh, small city of Charlottesville. Mm. Here are some opportunities to see performances or to uh, uh, to activate. And forgive me if I'm missing some, but let me, if I don't mind, do the list. Oh, please. on Opera Company, the American Shakespeare Center in Stan, Four County Players, the Guerrilla Theater Production, Hamner Theater, mm. Live Arts, PVCC has a wonderful program. You can see live streaming at the Paramount. There's a place called Play On. There's the UVA Drama Department and the Heritage Theater Festival and an improv company called Ben Theater. That's just in Charlottesville. Mm, I, I know it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, you know, and Charlottesville, for people who don't know, Charlottesville is not a very big town. Uh, as a matter of fact, even though it's a city with a city council and it's just full of fine restaurants, full of fine theater activity, film production, thanks to people like Richard and Erica Arvold, and for, of course, full of history and the surrounding area. I don't know. We, we could go on and on. Um, Richard, t- tell us some final thought. All of your lists, by the way, you're so incredible, uh, are were wonderful to hear. Everything that I knew and tucked away, you brought back out to the surface where it needs to be. It's been a tremendously wonderful, beautiful, educational conversation. But tell us now, tell all us actors, the beginners and the old guys as well, where do we go to get uh, rejuvenated? Where do we go to uh, recapture uh, the essence of all of that magic? Who, where do we go in Central Virginia, in Charlottesville? series of work, uh, master classes and workshops that, that we do here in Charlottesville. We also tour around and you can, um, you can uh, find more information about that by going to the website uh, ARVLD just uh, punch up Arvold and look at Arvold Education and you'll see some opportunities. In every uh, city, there's there's venues in uh, Richmond, certainly in D.C. Um, you'll find uh, uh, places, if you go to a theater, a community theater, uh, you'll be surprised there'll be somebody that maybe has had a New York City career mm-hmm. that has classes going. 
going. And uh, I, I guess the, the best advice I can say is that you, uh, you need to put yourself on the line. You can sit and dream. You can watch film like forever. You have to get up and you have to do it. It seems so simplistic, but mm. if you don't put yourself on the line, you're not going to lose. Uh, you're going to lose something, and you're not going to move forward. And putting yourself on the line, you, you can do this very simply, which is getting. And this is what I uh, again uh, offer to students: is that uh, you've heard Marcello and I talk about self-taping. Get yourself a camera, find a space, and just really get in front of the camera and mm. practice every day. If you made a habit of every other day just simply taking a piece of material and perhaps even memorizing it and standing and, and, put, and moving into character and filming it and then watching that film afterwards, you're, you're moving your career uh, uh, forward a little bit. Wow is really to go and see good performances. Again, this is part of what I'm calling the film practice, that uh, to to go back to the spark, and that's, I guess, what your initial question yes. is, what motivated me to really do this in the first place? I guess I would gently tell you that it's going to change. What you, what you started out with, that spark, more than likely is going to be different now the older you get. So you have to constantly revive and renew that. So one good thing I always say to myself, and I actually this was actually something I stole from Vaktagnov, who was the great disciple of Stanislavski, mm-hmm. our great mentor. Mm-hmm. He said that every time you go into the theater, you must ask yourself this question, why am I doing it today? Mm. With the emphasis on today, mm. which is, and if, it, if the thing is, I'm doing it for the money, then that's an honest statement. Mm. If you're honest with yourself, I'm doing it because I'm dedicating today for this reason. Because I think every artist has to have that sort of focused point of view of the reason I'm doing this is partly for myself, but also partly because I have a story to tell. Yes. And, if it, and that story to tell is, I think, uh, what all of us start with. So I know that of you, uh, dear sir, that you you have many stories to tell, and people have allowed you to do it. And again, you say we're blessed. People allowed me to tell stories as I directed Hamlet, or I tell stories in classrooms. And this, those stories we, are worth it if, in fact, they have craft. And the only way you're going to do craft is to work on it like any other good performing artist. Exactly. All right. There's nothing to say beyond that except thank you, Richard Warner for being on the show and for sharing your wisdom and artistic expertise with us as a teacher, as an actor, as a director, as a mentor. Please, everyone, visit Arvold, A-R-V-O-L-D, and uh, hey, uh, get, get, get into the groove. That's, that's the thing. Thank you so much, Richard, for being on the show. I really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you soon. Okay. Yes, we should get together soon. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. All the best. Bye now. Bye-bye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. It takes an unusual film to have us laughing out loud and horrified at the same time. This is the case with the 2009 documentary, The Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia. The Whites are a contemporary lawless clan that knows how to party no matter what the consequence. Don't get in their way. Crossing them could lead to a bad end. 
They speak of stabbing errant husbands and shooting no good uncles with particular delight. One can only guess what might happen to an outsider who displeases them. This is a thoroughly balanced look at a tough family to watch. The music and dancing are wonderful. The history of the clan, as it evolves from the corrupt practices of corporate coal cartels, is riveting, and the terrifying lawlessness is a legacy which will clearly continue. The younger offspring delight in demonic behavior as their parents drink, drug, and party their lives away. A lot of credit goes to director Julia Nitzberg, who spent a full dangerous year filming the colorful outlaw clan in their mountain home. Through his film, we get the opportunity to observe a fascinating piece of Americana: the wild and wonderful whites of West Virginia. Real? Oh my! Horrific? Yes. Entertaining? Absolutely. Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Before the parade passes by democracy, though no political starry-eyed novice, viewing stunning Brit cast of Parade's End, I wondered aloud who could lie so easily with equal measure of arrogance and hypocrisy without a scintilla of remorse. Reliving Hill versus Thomas, watching confirmation, I remembered the mockery of justice for all sweating out of Trey Gowdy for senior partners behind the corporate curtain, and I asked the darkness: Is winning left, right, and center the new alt mission? If so, all of us, regardless of political persuasion, need to pause, take a mental breath, and self-impose a twenty-four-hour moment of silence to think. Breathing out liberal hyperbole, right-wing falsehoods, and merry-go-round media, we free both left and right brain. It's not just Trump or those who voted for him. It's the people who invest in the people who project their sins on we the people, believing democracy is a calculated commodity. A national time out could still the nightmare and reawaken the dream of possibility thinking, including but not limited to pausing the current presidency's 140 character reign. Despite the embarrassingly awkward attempt to preempt a Trump congressional premiere, the strained, underwhelming, miscued parroting duo of Thomas Perez and Keith Ellison prompted former Palin tutor and current MSNBC contributor Stephen Edward Steve Schmidt to uncharacteristically be categorically wrong in his assessment that the Democratic Party made a miserable Trump congressional rebuttal choice. In former Kentucky Governor Steve Bashir, I was in the room when 75-year-old Bernie Sanders asked a standing-room-only gathering of supporters to prevent a Donald Trump presidency by supporting Hillary. The enormous Pennsylvania Convention Hall space was overflowing with a sea of supporters, from millennials to great-grandparents. Smartphones held high over our tear-stained faces. Because Democrats are senior wisdom, youthful virtuosity, and the power of diversity. On Monday, November seventh, twenty sixteen, the GOP was media pronounced dead on arrival. At two a.m. Wednesday, November ninth, twenty sixteen, talking cable heads began substituting GOP demise with the Democratic Party is leaderless and helplessly divided. 
Now the collective think is there's some Russian rotting in the Trump swamp of golden sacks. America has survived wars of adversity and inconsistent trust in diversity, not always rising above conservative hesitancy, failing to see and value all humanity. So when our hope seems a mere slither of light, red-mapped between Wall Street and GOP leaders, our majority of minorities lifts us above the extremes of extremists. Good is peacefully assembled. Bad is accepting the bottom line of two tarnished by Wall Street national political parties. Ugly is the lies we tell ourselves to justify electing the worst among us. The union between Wall Street Congress and red state politicians is a marriage of convenience that is more akin to European aristocracy before World War I than American patriotism. And while branding democratic all-for-one and one-for-all as communism, it is as likely to shun its own Republican support. Self-preservation of economic elites is not individualism. It's a prejudicial selection system. The Democratic Party is Oprah Winfrey and Elizabeth Warren, college students and the Clintons, Kazir Khan and the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber. We are the Women's March and Moral Mondays, realizing freedom of choice is free will. We believe in science, preserving the planet and all life upon it, and that the promise of our Statue of Liberty is the foundation of American exceptionalism. So, Democratic Party leaders need cease and desist all attempts to ascertain how to win back the Rust Bowl, for Democrats are the Rust Bowl, and our base remains out of many one. Democrats comprise an eclectic United States of Everyone party, and the sooner centrists and left-wingers embrace each other in this reality, the sooner America can lift every voice and sing, Happy Days Are Here Again. It's not just real Russian hacks, nor fantasy Trump wiretaps nor even heated town halls for GOP tap dancers. It's knowing Lincoln's government of, by, and for the people wasn't a guarantee, but a gauntlet to the future of democracy. Thank you. Now join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Com website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.